Hi, this is Pastor Jim. Thanks for joining us for this week's message from Riverside Church. I believe you will be inspired and blessed by the Word of God. We'd love to welcome you to one of our services next time you're in the Brisbane area. If you'd like to know more about us, go online at www.riversidecc.org.au or like us on Facebook to hear about up-and-coming events. I hope you enjoy the message. God bless you. Morning, everyone. How are we going? In case you were unsure, it is winter. You know, last week has been wonderful. I love winter. It's my favourite season of the year. I love winter. Excellent. How are we going? Now, you guys are blessed. You know that? You are blessed because it's the second week in a row you've had me speak to you. Isn't that awesome? Like, you are blessed. Unfortunately, though, there's not three awesome people with me to preach this morning, which means by my calculations that this sermon will only be as one quarter as good as last week's sermon, okay? But it won't go for one quarter of the time, so go make yourselves comfortable. Let's pray as we come around God's word this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that is living and active. Lord, that you want to challenge us and motivate us and encourage us. And as we look through John, you want us to see and remind, be reminded that Jesus is the Messiah that he is the anointed one, that we will continue to believe in Jesus and follow him and honour him with our lives. Open our minds and hearts this morning to receive, in Jesus' name, amen. Today, we walk together through the Gospel of John, and we're going to come to a portion of Scripture that, on the surface, may not seem quite as exciting as some of the previous chapters we have done. I mean, you think about it, John 1. What is with God, the word was God, in the beginning was the word. It's, it's famous, famous, John 1. John 2, we see wine, water turned into wine. We see Jesus overturning tables. It's all very exciting. John 3 contains the most famous Bible verse in the world. John 4, Jesus encounters the woman at the well. John 5, Jesus heals the man at the pool of Bethesda. All very exciting stuff. And John 6, we have the feeding of the 5,000, as Pastor Ken talked about. And, of course, we have Jesus' difficult but important teaching about him being the bread of life, which we covered last week. And so we come now to John 7. And where is Jesus in John 7? Jesus is hanging out in the countryside, up in the boondocks somewhere in Galilee, that's hanging out with his disciples. That's where we find Jesus. That's all he's doing. And we're going to look today at John 7, verses 1 to 10. This goes like this. After this, Jesus travelled around Galilee. He wanted to stay out of Judea where the Jewish leaders were plotting his death. But soon it was time for the Jewish festival of shelters. And Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, where your followers can see your miracles. You can't become famous if you hide like this. If you can do such wonderful things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers didn't believe in him. Jesus replied, now is not the right time for me to go, but you can go anytime. The world can't hate you, but it does hate me because I accuse it of doing evil. You go on. I'm not going to this festival because my time has not yet come. After saying these things, Jesus remained in Galilee. But after his brothers went left for the festival, Jesus also went, though secretly staying out of public view. The first place we're going to stop is after the first two words, after this. We didn't get very far, I know, but just bear with me. It's really, really important. This is how John 7 starts. After this. After what exactly? 
The important thing we need to remember now is that last week we looked at John 6, and Jackie finished off by covering that Jesus' disciples had left him. They abandoned Jesus, except for the 12. And now we start in John 7. It's a week for us, but in Scripture, six months have passed. Between John 6 and John 7, it is six months later. How do we know this? Because of John's reference to the festivals or the feasts. At the beginning of John 6, it says it's nearly time for Passover, which we call Easter, so it's late March or early April. Okay, so when John 6 starts, it's probably mid-March, the time that it happens. And we just read that it was time for the Festival of Shelters or the Feast of Tabernacles, which happens at the end of harvest, at the end of September, beginning of October. So six months have gone by between the two verses, which you might not understand if you didn't know that. John's gospel is different. We know it's different. And this case is different because he chose not to detail what happens in that time. Now, fortunately, in God's wisdom, he gives us three other gospels. And in those gospels, they do detail what happened. Most notably, you can read about it in Mark chapters 7 to 9, what happens in those times. And you might be thinking, maybe John just didn't include it because nothing interesting happened. You know, that, that could be the reason. Okay? But... You might be familiar with some of these events that actually occurred, like the feeding of the 4,000. Like, I know it's not as exciting as 5,000, but feeding 4,000 people plus women and children is kind of a big deal. Okay? That happened in that time. Uh, a little thing where Peter has a revelation that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah. That's kind of important, but John overlooks that bit as well. And something also called the Transfiguration. Okay? That's, yeah, that's a little thing, okay? that happened in that time. So you might be familiar with some of those things, but John doesn't write about any of them. He skips over that portion of Scripture, and he picks up the events at the Festival of Shelters, or Feast of Tabernacles. So John Jesus. Jesus is wandering the, the Galilean countryside. He's going up to northern towns like Tyre and Sidon. He's, he's hanging all around the area, far away from Jerusalem. And along comes the Festival of Shelters. This, this festival. Now, this is one of three major festivals or feasts that required Jewish men to travel back to Jerusalem to celebrate. And according to the Jewish historian Josephus, he says that the festival of shelters is the most joyous of the three occasions. Okay, the first one being Passover, then Pentecost, and then Tabernacles. So it was a real time of celebration because it was the time when God's people remembered how God took care of them in the wilderness. When they wandered the 40 years of the desert and God provided everything they needed, they celebrate tabernacles or shelters as a way of commemorating and remembering God's goodness throughout that time. How he provided everything they needed. He provided food every morning. He walked out. You couldn't not walk on food. Manna was provided every day. They needed it. It says that God didn't allow their clothes or shoes to wear out. So they wore the same clothes and same shoes for 40 years because God provided them. You read that in Deuteronomy 29, verse 5. Imagine wearing the same pair of shoes for 40 years. It's like Pastor Pavey's nightmare, seriously. What a nightmare, okay? Didn't change your clothes. And so in remembrance, in commemoration of God's goodness, they would spend eight days camping like their ancestors. 
they would build little shelters, little tents, palm trees and fabric and sticks, and they would camp out. And if you can imagine, all over Jerusalem, families would build these little shelters on their roofs, in their front yards, in the streets, sometimes even in the temple courts. And so the whole place was littered with little shelters everywhere. Can you imagine it? What a great time. Imagine camping out with your family in a little hut for eight straight days. Doesn't that sound wonderful? For the record, the only stars I camp under are five stars. Okay? Sometimes four stars if I can't get five stars. I'm not a camper. Okay? But that's what they did. And it was a time of great celebration. The kids would run around, they would hit sticks with they hit rocks with sticks. Remembering the time when Moses struck the rock and water came forward. They would they would mimic and imitate the things that God did for them. So it was a great time of joy, great celebration. God provided their every need. And now generations later, they were still remembering what he had done. Which brings me to my first point. My first point is that we need to celebrate in our circumstance. You need to celebrate in your circumstance. Remembering our journey with Jesus helps us when our circumstances are hard. We need to celebrate our past victories in order to overcome our present problems. I'm sure that when the Festival of Shelters came around, not everyone was feeling particularly joyous or celebratory. I'm sure when it rolled around every year, there were some people who were doing it tough. The crops had failed or the family wasn't doing well. There was sickness in their family. They didn't feel like celebrating. And when we face an uphill struggle... The last thing we can see is ourselves celebrating on top of the hill, isn't it? When we're down here, we can't picture ourselves up there. But what if we stopped? What if we paused? Maybe not for eight days. Maybe not in a little shelter you've built in the backyard. But maybe stop, pause, and remember the good things that God has given you in the past. To remember the victories that he has given you. To remember his goodness that you've overcome before, that God has provided for you in the past. And know whatever you're facing, whatever the struggle is, he will provide again. He will help you overcome again. I know that sometimes the last thing you feel like is celebrating. But remembering the victories of our past powers our hope for the future. Remembering our victories of the past, it powers our hope. No matter how steep or how difficult the road ahead may be, we move forward with hope because we remember the times that God has lifted us up before. We remember that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So we praise him in the struggle. We praise him in the circumstances. And we stand firm in his goodness and know that he is with us now as he has been with us all along. We need to be like God's people, taking the time to remember his goodness. So it's this time of festival of shelters. It's this time of celebration. And like all Jewish men, Jesus' brothers, along with the family, uh, we'll be readying themselves to go up to Jerusalem, to make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. 
I mean, pick up the story in John 7, verse 3. And it says this. Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, where your followers can see your miracles. You can't become famous if you hide like this. If you can do such wonderful things, show yourself to the world. Don't you love it when people give you unsolicited advice? Isn't that the best thing in the world? When someone comes along and tells you what you should do when you didn't even ask them for it. It's amazing. I look forward to those moments. No, I don't look forward to those moments at all. Here we have the brothers of Jesus. And there are four of them that are named in Scripture. There was James, not that James. There was Joseph, we call him Junior. There was Judas, not that Judas. And there was Simon, not Simon Peter. You get that? So James, Joseph, Judas and Simon were Jesus' brothers. So they give him some great career advice. There's no point doing miracles up here in the boondocks in the backwater where no one is around. Okay? No one's paying attention to you up here. You need to go to Judea. You need to go into Jerusalem. That's where the action is. That's how you get famous. Now, when preparing for this sermon, I came across the fact there's a lot of conjecture about the motivation for Jesus' brothers and their advice. And I mean a lot. I've read everything and I've heard everything. There is a million theories about why they gave him advice. From they were simply jealous and they're trying to get Jesus to go up and get rid of Jesus. That was one theory someone said. Uh, they wanted Jesus to get famous again so they could cash in on his popularity. I even heard someone say that Jesus' brothers were just basically evil like the world. And they wanted him to go to Jerusalem so he could get killed. I don't think the last one is true. Just pointing that out to you. I don't think Jesus' brothers intend him harm. Just pointing it out there. And so what I read and when I studied and when I listened, what I think we are seeing here is that Jesus' brothers are no different from other people who didn't see Jesus as anything more than a political figure. A political messiah, if you will. He's certainly not God on earth, as Jesus claimed to be. He's not the special one, anointed one. And if you are a political figure, garnering followers is a logical step, isn't it? That makes sense. And going to Jerusalem to get up a groundswell of support, that's quite sensible. I get that. Furthermore, I think his brothers actually thought they were helping him. I think they thought they were actually giving good advice. They were being helpful brothers. I think that is true. They say, go up to Jerusalem where your followers can see your miracles. In the NIV it says, so your disciples can see your miracles. So what followers or disciples are they referring to? It's not the twelve, because they're with Jesus, and they have been with Jesus the whole time. So it's not them. The reference is to those who we saw in John 6, the ones who abandoned him, the ones who found his teaching a little bit too difficult, a little bit too much to take, and so they scattered. So I want you to consider this situation from the point of view of the brothers. Put yourself in their shoes. You see Jesus rise in popularity. You see him perform miracles. You hear the words people saying, did you see Jesus the other day? He healed some guy. He was blind. He made it. Did you hear the guy at the pool of Bethesda? Like he healed him. You're Jesus' brother, right? Did you see what he did the other day? He's amazing. 
Can you do those things like Jesus does? No, he didn't ask that. They would have heard. They would have seen his momentum increase. And people started joining the crowd. People started joining and following. And so his brothers are watching on and they're hearing stories and they're seeing this. Then all of a sudden, everyone abandons him. Except for his 12 mates. And all of a sudden, you see your brother hanging out with his 12 mates up in some country towns far away from the action. If you're his brothers, what are you thinking? Maybe we can encourage him to go back down to Jerusalem and win them back. He can win them back and be everything he was before. Wouldn't that make sense? Isn't that your advice if you saw your siblings struggle? You want to encourage them to get back on their feet? No matter what you think of Jesus' brother's motivation, no matter what you personally believe the motivation was, the thing we learn here is that motivation matters. Motivation matters. As followers of Jesus, our motivation matters. Why we do what we do is crucial. It is easy to see that Jesus' brothers, regardless of what their motivation was, it was wrong. It was the wrong motivation, simply because their advice was based on human thinking. It was based on a human mindset. It was based on political positioning or a focus on fame. It certainly was not motivated by the Father's will. We must be on guard to always check our motivation. In all that we do and all that we say, we must weigh up the difference between the things of God and the things of man. We have to weigh up the things of God and the things of man. When we are making decisions, it is all too easy to get caught up in the emotion of the circumstance. We get excited and we charge on ahead without thinking, without asking, is this the right thing to do? Is this what God wants from me? Or we're down and we're thinking to ourselves, I can't do this. It's just too much. It's just too hard. And you don't move forward because of your emotion, because of how you feel. Before we do anything, we need to understand our motivation. Why are we saying this? Why are we doing this? Why are we seeking this? Is it what God wants for us? Ironically, a great example of this is found in Mark 8. A conversation that actually occurs in that time that John doesn't mention in his gospel. And in Mark 8, we see that Peter has the revelation that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Christ. And in that same conversation, as it goes on, Peter is rebuked by Jesus. When Jesus tells his disciples that he must die, Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. Can you imagine reprimanding Jesus? Can you imagine rebuking God? It's, it's incredible. It's almost unbelievable that he would take Jesus aside and go, actually, Jesus, I think you're wrong. That's not going to happen. Not while I'm standing here. That's not going to happen. If you're a follower of God, you don't reprimand your creator. You might question God for clarity. I don't understand God. Can you help me see what's going on? You might cry out to God in frustration. Why is this happening, God? I don't understand. What must I do? You could even be angry at God, frustrated at Him. But you don't criticize Him. 
because he's God. He's the creator of heavens and earth. You don't go, God, well, you stuffed that one up. You got that wrong, obviously. You think you're way off track, God. No, you're not, not, no. You got no chance. That's not what we do as followers of God. But that's exactly what Peter does to Jesus. That's what Peter does to Jesus. And what is his response? We read in Mark 8.33 that it happened. Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples and then reprimanded Peter. Get away from me, Satan. You imagine Peter's eyes went, whoo, like, like, like it was a smack in the face. He said, you are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Here is the quintessential example of someone who only had in mind the things of man. Peter's response was birthed out of his emotion, his fear of losing Jesus. He was afraid that Jesus would leave him. Our emotions can help us process things, yes. Emotions are important. They're God-given. They help us work through things. But emotions are not a good source of motivation. We don't make our mind up as saying, based on how we feel at the time. Let us instead keep our mind on the things of God. Let's be motivated by his word. Motivated to do good as Jesus did. Motivated to keep in step with God's purpose and plan for your life. Because why we do things matters. Our motivation is important. As we're going to see in the very next verse. In John 5, Jesus said, he said this, he said, for even his brothers didn't believe in him. Remember that? Even his brothers didn't believe in him. First, they try and give Jesus some greater career advice. But guess what? They didn't even believe in who he said he was. They saw the miracles. They heard the chatter amongst the people. Your brother's amazing. But did they believe he was the chosen one of God? Did they believe that he was the Messiah, the anointed one? No. No, they didn't. And with this in mind, keeping in mind motivation matters, keeping in mind they didn't believe in Jesus, my next point is closely tied, and it is we must keep careful counsel. We must keep careful counsel. We must be careful who we allow to influence our lives. I mean, these weren't some strangers that came along Jesus' path. They were his brothers. They grew up with Jesus. They were his family. They knew him. But they didn't really know him. Sometimes our family, depending on your circumstance, aren't always the best counsel. How about our friends then? They know us, right? They're our friends. Well, yeah, they might know us. But friends don't always give the best counsel either. Even those closest to us, who may even have our best interest, at least according to them, in their minds, at heart, the question still needs to be asked. Do they have in mind the things of God or the things of men? The other night at Connect, this was the week before last, well, I wasn't in the room, I might point out, Jane told the story of when I became a Christian and I told my family. I remember sitting watching TV with my dad, which didn't happen very often, it's a pretty rare occasion, and he just out of the blue turns to me and he says to me, 
What if you're wrong? What if you're wrong? Now, I have a great answer for that now. Like, you ask me that now, I'll give you a great answer about what if I'm wrong. But I was young. I was a young Christian. I was caught out of the blue, and it was my father asking me the question. And so I was thinking in my head, what do I say? I need an answer. I need an answer. What do I say? And my response was very simple. I said, I know that I'm not. And it must have been look at my face, or it must have been how I said it. But he didn't pursue the conversation anymore. Because he knew, I think, that I was utterly convinced that the gospel was true. And there's no point trying to convince me otherwise. Now, it might seem like a little question. And could easily be motivated by my interests in his mind. He's just trying to be a good dad and make sure I make good decisions. But I knew my dad's history as well. I knew from my grandma, his mum, that he was once active in the church. He served God. We used to say he was on fire for Jesus. That was my dad once upon a time. But then he went down. He went down to Sydney for a while. And when he came back, he had changed. He no longer went to church and was obviously living a life separate from God. So when my dad asked, what if you're wrong? His motivation, I believe, is certainly partly out of looking out for me and concern for me. I get that. But it is also inextricably, undoubtedly tied to his own journey of faith, to his lost faith, his choice to turn away from God. It can't not be motivated partly by that. Even those who love us can counsel us from mixed motivations. You have to be careful who you allow to influence your life, even those who love you. Because anyone can counsel from mixed motivations, even if they themselves are completely unaware that they're doing it. They can advise us from a place that is not of God and only from a human mindset. In Proverbs 19, verse 21, I'm going to read from the NKJV, New King James. It says, There are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. We need to be careful who we look to for counsel and whose counsel we take in. Because everyone has plans. Everyone's got a plan of how their life is going to go and how everyone fits into their world. They've got a plan. But in the end, it is only God's plan that will stand. All the rest do not matter. Seek counsel from God. Read and absorb his word. Pray for guidance. Ask the Holy Spirit to lead you and guide you unto all truth. Seek people in your life who know God and actively worship him whose motivation you know, whose counsel you know, is from the mind of God. You need to surround yourself with godly wisdom. Surround yourself with godly wisdom. If you are careful to only take on board advice that is born out of God's will and purpose, then you will protect yourself from people's ungodly motivations, knowingly or unknowingly. Whenever you're in doubt, or you always go back to God's word. If someone gives you advice, ask yourself the question, does it line up with scripture? Does it line up with God's word? Pray on it. Ask him to lead you so you don't get misled by poor counsel. Like we see given to Jesus by his brothers. 
So what is Jesus' response? How does he respond to his brothers? In verse 6, he replies, Now is not the right time for me to go, but you can go anytime. The world can't hate you, but it does hate me because I accuse it of doing evil. You go on. I'm not yet going to this festival because my time has not yet come. So Jesus says some interesting things in this little bit. First, he says it's not the right time, which we know. We know it's not the right time from the word because we know that Jesus' time to be arrested happens at the next Passover in six months' time. So we know that from God's word. Jesus knew he was operating to God's timetable, not the timetable of people. Then he says, you can go anytime. The world can't hate you. Now, we know that Jesus has ruffled some feathers, yeah? We know. We know that because the, the leaders in Jerusalem are plotting to kill him. So he's ruffled some feathers. In addition, ruffled some feathers, so his disciples deserted him. So we know there's not a lot of love for Jesus around. In fact, there's a fair bit of hate for Jesus around. But Jesus states that the world can't hate his brothers. That's what he says to them. The world can't hate you. You're free to go wherever you want, whenever you want. The world can't hate you. And this is Jesus' direct response to their unbelief. Why can't the world hate them? Because they are just like the world. The world loves its own. The world can't hate them because they're no different. They speak like the world. They act like the world. They are just like everybody else. They're free to move wherever they want because the world doesn't wait for God. Unbelievers don't ask God for direction, do they? They don't wait for his timing. They are free to do whatever they want. Just like James, Joseph, Judas and Simon, because they are brothers of unbelief. The danger for us, though, is that we can allow unbelief to creep into our lives as well. You may believe in Jesus, you may follow Jesus, you may have followed Jesus for many years, but we are all prone to doubt. We are all prone to allowing a little bit of unbelief to creep into our lives. When our circumstances get tough, when things are hard, sometimes we begin to wonder, oh, maybe God isn't with me. A little bit of unbelief can creep in. We cannot allow unbelief to dictate how we think, how we speak, and how we behave. You have to know that just as God has been with you in the past, as I spoke before, he is with you now and will be with you in the future. Do not allow unbelief to creep in to your mindset. Keep your mind on the things of God. If we are to be followers of Jesus, we are called to a different way of living. We are called to be people who live in contrast to the world around us. And my last point today is that we must live as light. We must live as light. Jesus openly declares and pronounces the world as evil. The world is evil. It's a strong word. And this is why the world hates him. In John 3, 19, after the most famous verse in the Bible, Jesus speaks this. He says, God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. Not only does he call it evil, he calls the world a place of darkness. 
So how do you live in contrast to a place that is dark? You live as light. In Matthew 5, Jesus calls us salt and light. He doesn't say that we are becoming salt and light. He doesn't say that we strive to be salt and light. He says that if you believe in me, you are salt and light, regardless of how long you've been a Christian for. You are salt and light. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. If you believe and declare that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died for your sins and rose again to bring us into a right relationship with him, then we are already living in contrast to the rest of the world. We move against the grain. We speak against the grain. Our lives shine the light of Jesus wherever we go because he is in us and he wants to shine through us so the darkness can be overcome. But don't forget, when light exposes dark, people will hate you. It's a strong word, but it's Jesus' word. In John 15, Jesus says, If the world hates you, remember, it hated me first. The world loved you when you were part of it, but you were no longer part of the world. When we believe in Jesus, we step out of the world into his kingdom, into his family. We become different. You may not feel that people hate you. Praise Jesus. I'm happy for you. I'm so glad. As a chaplain in a high school, I automatically become the public token Christian. Okay? I couldn't hide being a Christian if I wanted to. I'm a chaplain. And while I don't feel hate from other people, and I've been a chaplain for 17 years, I don't feel hate. I've never felt people hate me. But there are people in my workplace who avoid me. That is certainly true. There are people who avoid talking to me, who steer clear of my path because they live in darkness. And I live as light because Jesus shines through me. When we live as light, we choose to speak and act in contrast to the world around us. That is what it means to follow Jesus. You become salt and light to everyone around you. Jesus knows that his light will expose the teachers of the law and their darkness. And their darkness will eventually lead to his death at the right time. It's just not the right time now. It's not the time for Jesus to shine just yet. The last couple of verses in this passage, in verse 9, it says this, After saying these things, Jesus remained in Galilee. But after his brothers left for the festival, Jesus also went, though secretly staying out of public view. So Jesus remains in Galilee. He stays behind. Okay? His brothers and all the extended family, they would travel up to Jerusalem as one big convoy, just like we saw when Jesus was a boy, when they lost him, when he was 12 years old, and they realized, where's Jesus? And had to run back and get him. That's what it would have been like. The family traveling in a convoy up to Jerusalem. But then Jesus heads up to the festival later, in secret. And you will see as we go through seven, in John 7 later on, he actually teaches at the temple midway through the festival. The question I have reading this is why did Jesus go to the festival at all? I mean, if he knows they're trying to kill him and he tells his brothers, now is not the right time, why go at all? I think it's a great question. Have you wondered why he went? Why go? 
He knew it was dangerous. He knew that when their family's convoy came through, the Jewish leaders would be waiting for them and asking them, where's Jesus? Have you seen Jesus? Where's Jesus? They were looking for him. Where is Jesus? So why does he go up? Because it's the right thing to do. As a member of a Jewish family, growing up in Jewish culture, as a Jewish man, he is required by law to pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the festival. Now we know that he wasn't in Jerusalem for Passover, just gone, because he was in Capernaum. He was up somewhere else. And we know that he wasn't there for Pentecost, even though it's not mentioned in John 6, because he didn't leave the area. And now we're at the Festival of Shelters. So he hasn't been there the last two times, and he knows he should go the next time. That is what the law requires. That is what I should do. Now we know that in the eyes of the teachers of the law, Jesus did break the law, according to them. He healed on the Sabbath. How dare he? But Jesus had an answer for them. And when they attacked him, he had a response for them. But in this instance, I think Jesus knows that is the right thing to do. And doing the right thing is a powerful witness to those around you. Because it helps them trust you. It shows that you have integrity. While not always convenient, we must do the right thing, as Jesus does the right thing. Living as light means doing what is right, even when it's not easy, even when it puts us out. Living in obedience keeps our heart right with God. It keeps us in a right relationship where God is number one, where he is the most important thing. God's way may not always seem easy or even easy to understand. Jackie last week talked about people didn't understand. But Jackie said what? We weren't called to understand. We were called to stay with Jesus. That's what she said. We are called to remain in him, even when it doesn't make sense. We are called to live a life honoring God, shining his light. As we begin to wrap up and finish today, I want to look lastly at a verse not written by John, but written by James, his brother. The same brother who at this moment doesn't believe in Jesus. James writes in chapter 3, verse 13, he says this, If you are wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honourable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. He writes about living an honourable life of good works on a foundation of wisdom. Once upon a time, James did not believe that Jesus, his brother, was the Messiah. But then he was humbled, wasn't he? It is humility that brought wisdom. And then he saw Jesus for who he was after the resurrection. When Jesus came back from the dead, James and his brothers got the revelation. They were humbled because of their disbelief. And they chose to follow him. All of us, if you're a follower of Jesus, one point in your life, did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. At some point in time, you doubted. You weren't sure. There was unbelief. And all of us have gone through the process where we have been humbled. We have been humbled. 
some more than others, depending on your background. I have been humbled a lot in comparison with my former life. And through that humility comes wisdom. The wisdom we need to live a life that honours God and do good works like Jesus. I think for us the message is simple. Live your life as one who shines the light of Jesus. That is the reminder here today. Sometimes we forget. Sometimes we ignore or forget or don't realize that we are meant to be shining the light of Jesus every single day. And when things get tough, as they will, when the situation is difficult, when we're facing the uphill struggle, we need to stop. Remember his faithfulness. Remember his goodness. Remember to celebrate the victories of our past so they continue to shine all the more in the future. We need to surround ourselves with godly counsel. And in God's wisdom, we become godly counsel for other people. And we need to live with godly motivation, knowing why you do what you do. Why do you say what you say? Does it honor God? Let us bless others with good works. Let us live wisely. Let us live as salt and light in the world that chooses darkness. Will you stand with me this morning? We're going to stand this morning. And what I want is, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, what I want now, what I feel at the moment, is that we need to stop. We need to pause. No matter what is happening in your life before we came into the building this morning, and what is going to happen after you leave this morning for the rest of the week, no matter how your week has been the last seven days, I want you to stop and put that to the side and stand before God. Stand before God and simply say thank you. I want you just in your mind, picture God and say thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. Thank you, for everything you have given me, every blessing that I have received, every victory that I have, every way that I have overcome, every time that you have lifted me up in the past, every time that you have been there for me, I remember it now. I bring it to my mind right now. I put aside the things of today and I look back at the past and I think, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God, for being there for me and how you have brought me to this place. while we stand, pause. While we stand, stop. Maybe it's you this morning. Maybe this morning you are just like one of Jesus' brothers. You're a person of unbelief. Maybe you're standing here, maybe watching at home this morning. Maybe you're saying, I don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. There's doubt. There's uncertainty. Maybe that's you this morning. And what I want to do is I want to invite you I want to invite you to see Jesus for who he really is. There are people in this room this morning who could testify to his goodness, testify to his reality, testify that he loves them. And the truth is, he loves you too. He loves you too. If you're watching at home, if you're here this morning, I want you to simply surrender, to humble yourself and go, yes, God. 
I have lived my life separate from you. That's what we call sin. Doing it our way and not God's way. All you need to do is simply say, Lord, forgive me of my sin. Come into my life. I want to follow you now, Jesus. I declare that you are the Son of God, Jesus. You died for my sin and you rose again so I could have life, freedom, purpose. That's all it takes. If that's you this morning and you want to do that, and you've done that, I encourage you to reach out to us. Reach out to us. And for us this morning, standing here, stopped at the foot of the cross, stopped in the presence of God, having put those things aside of our present concerns, I would ask, if any of you have unbelief this morning, if you're doubting that, if there's a little bit of unbelief creeping in, I pray, Lord, that, I pray that you would put it at the foot of the cross. Now. That you would say, God, I trust in you. God, I believe in you. I trust in you. And I know that you are with me. And I know that you will guide me if I would seek your face. And I encourage you, seek godly counsel. Find someone. There are people in this church who worship God, who follow God. Seek them. Maybe this morning it's your circumstances. Maybe it's you are facing an uphill struggle and you really can't picture yourself on top of the hill celebrating. And what I want to say to you this morning is you're not running alone. Jesus is with you. Jesus is with you. God is there for you in your circumstances. Stop now and celebrate. Celebrate the goodness of God in your life because he has brought you this far. He's not going to leave you now. He's going to take you all the way. Lord, Lord, I pray for everyone in this room. I pray for everyone now that they would seek to live lives that shine your light. That you would help us shine your light. That you would shine through us, God. That you would help us to always know why we do what we do. That you would help us have godly motivations. You would help us to act and walk and think and speak in line with your word, in line with your purposes and plans for our life. Lord, help us to seek those in our life. Surround ourselves with people who love you, who want to guide us. And Lord, help us to honor you. Help us to live lives that honor you. everyone in this place, everyone who stopped in front of you now, I pray, Lord, that you would speak to them and give them guidance now, that you would reveal yourself to them, that they would step out of this place today and for the rest of this week and the week after that and the month after that and the year after that, they would seek to live a life that honors you, humbling themselves before you, doing good things, shining a light in a world that is dark. The world needs light more than ever. And you need us to be willing to shine. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you, Jesus. Thanks for listening today. I hope you subscribe to the podcast so you can be inspired weekly. 
God bless and have a great day.